Welcome to the Royal Caribbean Blog Podcast, where we can look into the world of Royal Caribbean cruising. I'm your host, Matt Hotchberg, and this is episode number 467. This week, I'm here to talk about my recent cruise on Royal Caribbean's Mariner of the Seas, talk about the things I did on board, and kind of give a glimpse of this cruise. Here we go. No, it's not deja vu. You did hear correctly. I went back on Royal Caribbean's Mariner of the Seas just a few weeks after I was on Mariner of the Seas for the Royal Caribbean Blog Group Cruise back in July. And uh, there's a couple reasons why I booked this particular sailing. And today I'm going to talk about Mariner of the Seas and round two on board in the last couple of weeks. So as you all know, I did a cruise on Mariner of the Seas in July. Had a great time on there. And afterwards, when I got off the ship, this is a Matt problem more than anything. <laughs> But I got off the ship and realized I didn't have another cruise until the end of September. This was the end of July. It seemed like there would be a ripe opportunity for me to cruise in August on something. And so I started casually looking for some new cruise options that were out there. I wasn't, you know, hard pressed on it. August, by the way, is when school restarts here in Florida. I know it's crazy, but we restart school like the second week of August. And uh, so that basically means that the kids definitely can't get off of, for a cruise. We could have maybe done a weekend sailing like a you know, Friday to Monday kind of sailing. But my oldest daughter is starting to enter middle school now. She's adamant about not missing any school time. So we just, that seemed like a non-starter to begin with. And so I was just kind of, you know, casually looking at some ideas. And Labor Day weekend appealed to me because, well, there's a built-in day off there. But more importantly, it's usually really good pricing. If you want a time of year in which you can almost, almost bet on last-minute deals, it's almost certainly... Labor Day weekend, there's also some other weeks in the year in which you can usually count on deals like maybe the first two weeks of December. Uh, Thanksgiving tends to actually be rather inexpensive at the last minute as well. Pretty much all of January, except for New Year's Eve. You know, these are times of the year where, you know, if you're flexible, you can really find some good deals. Certainly there were a number of options that were there, but I found an inside room on Mariner of the Seas for a five-night cruise that went to both Labadee and Coco Key. For just $500. When you added in gratuities and all that, it came out to about $600. And then actually, our good friends at MEI Travel had a wonderful deal. I got $75 onboard credit for, there was a special promo that the agency was running. So, you know, all out, basically paid about $600 out the door. And I got $75 onboard credit for an inside room for five nights. I was looking at Independence of the Seas because it was doing a four-night cruise. It also left on the same day. But it was only four nights. Only went to Coco Key. And was a day shorter and actually the price I think it was actually more just around the same so bottom line is I booked this cruise exactly two weeks before the sailing and I would be the first to admit you're playing with fire with this one but you have to remember I live in Florida Port Canaveral is a hour drive from me so I'd have to worry about airfare or hotels or anything like that certainly if I was considering some cruises down from South Florida and which I think I looked at maybe freedom of the seas but, you know, it's a, it's a different ball game, and that might have been a different, you know, situation altogether. But when it comes to booking a last-minute cruise, you know, the, the magic is really, there's a lot of luck involved, good timing, and whether or not you're actually interested. For some people, they might have just simply said, well, you just were on Mariner of the Seas, and you want to go back again? You know, is it really that compelling? And for me, I looked at it for two reasons. Number one, uh, the itinerary was kind of cool that it went to both Kokoki and Labadee. And then on top of that, I really did enjoy Mariner. I love Mariner. I've been on Mariner a number of times since she started doing those three and four night sailings at Port Canaveral, even before the pandemic. And I always enjoyed going on her. And when we were just on board the other week. I mean, the staff was really phenomenal. The crew members are always good on Royal Caribbean. I don't have any, there's not one ship. I would say, Oh, don't go on the ship because the crew's terrible. They're all great. But on Mariner, I really, 
made a connection with a lot of the crew that were on there. And it certainly made a difference. And I think that as you cruise, if you're new to cruising, this is a hard concept to understand. But um, the more you cruise, eventually every now and then you get on a particular ship and a particular sailing. And there are some crew members that really stand out to you um, that, that you really, you know, get to know a little bit more because maybe you spend more time in that particular venue. Perhaps their service is so good that you're drawn back to that particular venue, whatever the case may be. And, and on a Mariner, that definitely happened there. So I was definitely more interested in getting back on board. So I booked an inside cabin on Mariner of the Seas, and certainly getting on the ship was pretty simple. Uh, the fact that I booked it at two weeks out meant I was obviously not getting a very very early boarding time. But the boarding time I did get was, I think, well, I think initially it was 12.30. And then I kept checking back, and eventually it dropped to 12 o'clock because I guess somebody canceled or changed their mind or what have you. And it doesn't matter. The bottom line is you should always check back the check-in times just because whatever time you get, sometimes they can add more time. Sometimes other people change. Literally, if, if somebody has an earlier time and they cancel or they change the, their time to a later time, that earlier time will instantly become available in the app. So definitely something to check out. So we booked the, uh, or I got the check-in time, drove over there. It was actually to my benefit. I wanted to do some work on Real Caribbean Blog at home, and then I could drive over and I was a little leery because that was the day that the Artemis 1 rocket was supposed to launch. It didn't launch. But on that particular day, it was supposed to go off between like 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. And the rocket launch area is right next to Port Canaveral. And everybody would be driving out to the coast. I was really worried about traffic. The good news was the launch was canceled. But it was irrelevant because when I left my house at 10.30 or so, I mean, all the traffic was going back to Orlando. Nobody was going out to the coast. There was a lot of traffic going back in. But for me, nothing at all. So... No problems. Uh, this cruise departed out of Terminal 5. I'll have more information on that at the end of the podcast. But the parking process was easy enough. There was not much of a wait to get on. There was a little bit of a line to check in, but it was manageable. One big change with this particular cruise was that I didn't need a COVID test. So if you recall, earlier this month in August, or earlier last month, this is September already, um, <laughs> Royal Caribbean changed their protocols. And if you were a vaccinated guest on a sh shorter cruise, uh, less than six nights, you would actually be able to uh, cruise without a COVID test at all. And it was kind of weird. It was kind of you know weird in the sense that like I'm so used to taking a COVID test. And when it got to two and three days before the cruise, I was kind of like, oh, it's kind of strange. I'm not taking a COVID test. And at one point, I thought about actually taking a test anyway. But I thought to myself, well, number one, I recently had COVID. Number two, I don't have any symptoms at all. So I don't feel like I should be taking a test. And number three, I wanted to be able to, you know, kind of take advantage of the whole situation. So didn't test. Felt fine, and, uh, you know, obviously the protocols have changed yet again, beginning September 5th, and it's actually a lot easier now. So uh, the bottom line is I certainly, going on this cruise, it was, uh, the process was a lot simpler because we'd have to do a COVID test. When he got to the terminal, nobody asked to see my COVID uh, test results, obviously. Um, I'd already put in the app my vaccination information, and it was all pretty straightforward, and it, it moved pretty quickly. I think the longest line I waited for was the final line after you do the actual check-in. So you're through security, they scan you, your your, your CPAS, your set sail pass rather, and they, you know, verify all your information. And then when you go to board the ship, there's another line right there to prevent anybody from walking on the ship who shouldn't be walking on the ship. And that was probably the longest line, but all in all, I probably made it from car to ship within I don't know, half an hour at the most. I mean it was it was pretty quick. So not bad at all. And this was also a time, again, I'm so used to getting there like super early in the first boarding group. So this was like, it was interesting and I didn't have any problems with it at all. Once on board the ship, 
you know, uh, being solo, I didn't have to deal with uh, my children at all. So we didn't have to go to Adventure Ocean or anything like that. I got lunch in the Windjamere, which was significantly busier when you get there at noon than when you get there at, you know, 11 or something like that. And certainly it was busy. I was able to get my food. I think the biggest issue is maybe getting a table, but I found a spot somewhere. And actually, I ended up eating at the Windjammer bar. One advantage of being solo is you can find almost any corner to eat at, but uh, this was no problem at all. And I got my food and, you know, um, we're off to the races, really. One thing I also tried was air tags on this particular cruise. So air tags, if you're unfamiliar, are a tracking feature, um, amenity, a, a device that you can purchase. They're only available for Apple users. You need to have an iPhone. And basically the way it works is you stick one of these bad boys. They look like they're about the size of a half dollar or a quarter. And you put it in your luggage and then you, uh, you, you pair it with your phone before you do that. And then you're able to track its location. Now it's not GPS, meaning that if you were to take this thing and shut, you know, drive in the, on the highway and throw it out the window into the woods and some bear were to pick it up, I don't know why it doesn't track it that way. Um, air tags on a very basic level are tracked via other I, uh, Apple devices. So when an iPhone is nearby, it basically gets pinged because automatically, whether they're someone, you know, or not, and it helps relay its location. And the idea was, I wanted to see how well or not well. It worked at all, and it kind of worked the way I expected it to. And, of course, I checked my luggage, which was kind of silly. I only had one bag. I could have carried it on myself, but for the purposes of testing, I decided to check a luggage. I gave it to the porter, and then I checked it periodically in the app. There's the Find My app, and you can go in there, and you can track you know, your, your tags in there. And you could see it occasionally. You know, It would move around different little places. You know, Again, it's, it's dependent on an iPhone being nearby, and sometimes the circle would be really large, and it would encompass the entire port. Or sometimes it would look like it's off the ship in the ocean. But of course, I knew that, well, number one, the ship is in, you know, the map can't see that there's a ship here. And number two, uh, you know, it it, it it would eventually readjust itself until somebody's phone got nearby. And it did a pretty decent job at it. My short review, and I did a review of this on realcoreanblog.com if you read the whole article. For the purposes purely of tracking your luggage on a real Korean cruise, I think it's real benefit is if your luggage didn't make it on board. Uh, you can't track it um, th three-dimensionally, meaning if it shows that it is in a location, like you can't tell if it's on deck six or deck 12 for that matter. So I, how helpful it was, I mean, it, my luggage was delivered perfectly, so I didn't have any problems at all. I think the real use case, and I think most people pointed this out, is that, yeah, it could be useful on a cruise, but it's probably more useful if you're flying. Because between the airports and the airlines and a variety of other issues, that's where it's more likely for your luggage to be lost. So, you know, what I recommend getting air tags, I would say that, you know, if you're flying, absolutely. There's really no reason not to. If you're an Apple device user, by the way, if, you, if, you're, a, if you're an Android user, there are similar products available. Tile Pro is one that I've heard very good things about. And it's a very similar odd, uh, product. So I would recommend getting that instead. But, you know, if you're flying, I think it's a, it's a slam dunk. If you're like me and you live in Florida or you basically only drive to your cruises, is it worthwhile? Mm, I would say probably not. I don't think you're doing yourself a disservice by getting one by any means. But it wasn't like, you know, uh, it, because it lacks a three dimensions, so you can't really see where it is, which deck it is on a cruise ship. I'm not sure how much value it would have other than the fact that obviously if your luggage was left on the pier somewhere, well, then you could definitely tell, okay, well, it's not on board the ship which may or may not make you feel better about it. At the end of the day, there's probably some value to it because at some point, whether you go on a cruise all the time or not, you're going to eventually get a fly, I think. And so there's a good reason to go there. So 
Uh, back on board Mariner of the Seas, uh, you know, everything was pretty much as I remember it. There wasn't a whole lot of changes there. What was interesting was on the night of the, the first night of the cruise, we ended up with a medical emergency. And the problem was that the uh, we had to drop somebody off because they had a medical emergency. They didn't say what it was. I don't think it's any of my business anyway. But we had to go to Fort Lauderdale. And uh, this all happened overnight. And there wasn't any announcements until the next morning. And when I woke up in the morning, I look out the window, and I see the coast of Florida. That's really strange. Then I looked at the map in my stateroom television. And not only are we uh, off the coast of Florida, we are facing north. Like the ship is north facing north and we're off the coast of Boca Raton, which is also very, and we're also dead in the water. We're not moving at all. Okay. Well, this is really strange. Sure enough, about an hour or so later, captain comes on the uh, intercom and says, you know, well, well, we had a medical emergency. We had to uh, go to actually go to Fort Lauderdale to drop them off Port Everglades. The coast guard wouldn't come out and send a helicopter for them. So there's a little bit of coordination required and long story short, there wasn't enough time now to make it to Labadee. If we had proceeded to Labadee, we wouldn't get there until the afternoon. And on the five-night cruise, you just don't have that kind of time for it. So as a result, they changed our itinerary. And instead of doing Sea Day, Labadee, Sea Day, Coco Key, we're doing Sea Day, Coco Key, Sea Day, Coco Key. So two stops at Perfect Day, Coco Key. Now, I personally didn't hate or love this particular change. I was fairly indifferent. We had just been to Labadee last month on Mariner, and so I had recently had that experience. So that's more of a me thing than I think most other people out there. I generally prefer Perfect Day Coca Key now at this point. The food is better. There's more to do. Um, and for that reason, you know, I, I was okay with it. I didn't have any problems. I know there were certainly some people who complained and were upset about not going to Labadee. You know, Labadee is great. I enjoy it as much as the next person. I just don't know that it's the most... Um, I don't know that I make that much of a stink about it. You know, if this had been last month, and this is my you know, maybe my first time going back to Labadee, uh, maybe I'd be more upset about it. You know, certainly if I was going to Labadee for the purposes of Royal Caribbean blog to review something like there was a new feature or they were upgrading something, I don't, then I, you know, the entire purpose of my cruise might be different. And then I would be obviously more distraught with the idea. But in this particular scenario, that wasn't the case. And so I felt fine with the change. And, you know, I think I, I'm hopeful that a lot of people who were upset about it, who, you know, are just upset about it because they thought it'd be somewhere cool to go to, understood that once they went to Coco Key for two days that they saw the real value of that because we'd done that particular itinerary back in June of 2021 on Adventure of the Seas when we had two days there and it was phenomenal and it's nice because that way you get two days to Coco Key allows you to really do it all. You can spend one day maybe at the pool, one day at the beach or different beaches. Um, it, it, it's really nice. So the first time that we went to Coco Key, we, I went to first the Oasis Lagoon, saw some friends over there. Hello to uh, Sue and Chris. And then I went to South Beach to kind of hang out over there. I was really in search of the breeze. I just wanted to like, well, at first I was going to go to the floating bar, which is one of my favorite things at Perfect Day Coco Key. It's a tiki bar that's just off the beach and you have to swim to it. It's not a very hard swim at all. In fact, you're mostly wading through the water until you get to about the last 10 feet or so. And then you got to swim it because it gets too deep. And it's a really fun spot. I thought I'd go there. Well, there were two problems. One was it was pretty deep. Not that I couldn't swim it. But I had my phone with me in my hand, and um, I can't do a one-arm swim. I'm not that good of a swimmer. So uh, I decided instead to hang out at the Coconut Willie's Bar, which is right on the beach there. It was a really nice breeze, and I was able to uh, just enjoy my time there. The weather was great. I mean, it was hot. Don't get me wrong. But 
with a breeze in the shade, manageable. You know, you can you can make do. And so I enjoyed it. And I spent my day over there. And then the next day, so the first day, by the way, was the unscheduled stop at Kokoki. The the last day of the cruise was our scheduled stop to Kokoki. And this one I had purchased the Cocoa Beach Club Pass because I wanted to verify and review what the Beach Club is all about. You know, when I first went to the Beach Club in when it first opened before the pandemic, right in uh, February of 2020, you know, the price of it was like, I think a bad price was like $90 a person. I think I paid like $75 a person for that one. And the price has gone up since then. Um, basically, everyone, the word is out, and a lot of people really like going there. And it's a fixed uh, capacity in there, and the price has gone up. And these days, you can probably expect to pay somewhere between $160 and $200 per person to go to the Cocoa Beach Club, which is a lot more money. And so I wanted to know, okay, if you're not doing a cabana, is the day pass worth the extra cost? That was really one of my big questions there. And so I went there in the morning and, and hung out and had lunch there. And the lunch is still phenomenal. If you're worried that anything's been compromised in that regard, that's definitely not the case. It's the best steak anywhere in Royal Caribbean, shipper, land, or otherwise. I mean, it, it is phenomenal. And the service is great. The infinity pool I really like. The beach area is beautiful. I mean, it's just uh, really pretty. I, I'm guessing they rake that beach quite often because it really, when I got there in the morning, it really felt like, you know, the, the sand was, there weren't a lot of divots in the sand, let's put it that way, other than maybe the, a seagull that went by. But it was it was pristine. It was great. I really enjoyed it. And my my recommendation or my review of it in a very short summary is, you know, if you've never done the Cocoa Beach Club before, I do think it's worth the cost. I mean, it's it's expensive, but it's kind of like to me, if someone says, oh, well, you know, I paid one hundred dollars to go there. You shouldn't pay more than that to go, which is something I used to say, by the way, I the answer. It's kind of like saying like, oh, well. You know, uh, 20 years ago, I paid 99 cents for gas, and you shouldn't pay more than 99 cents for gas. That's one has nothing to do with the other. That's in the past. It is what it is, and the price has moved on, and here we are. For the same reason, I'm not sure that analogy holds up, but you get my idea. Like the fact that the price was something before doesn't preclude you from doing it now. And I, my advice is, if you've never done it before, I would definitely recommend it. If you've been to the Cocoa Beach Club before, is it worth the cost? Now it's really in the realms of like flying first class or doing anything like staying in a suite. This really boils down to you want to treat yourself. I mean, the great thing about the Cocoa Beach Club is the capacity is reduced. We're, you know, we're, we're beyond the days of cruising and restart last year in which the island would not be that busy to begin with. And I would say, well, you're probably wasting your money for a limited capacity experience when the whole island is pretty much limited capacity. But, you know, now having been to the Oasis Lagoon and even South Beach, they're pretty busy. I don't think it's a problem. I don't want to make it seem like anybody who's listening to this, like, oh, gosh, honey, we're going to Cocoa Key. It's going to be a zoo. Far from it. There's plenty of space. You can always find a chair somewhere. Um, I, I I don't want to characterize it as a negative experience like that. But for some people, they truly value having a, a sense of exclusivity, a little elevated experience. And if that's you, then the Cocoa Beach Club is worth the money. I, I, I really believe that. So there's my look at uh, the Cocoa Beach Club and uh, Cocoa Key in general. Great time. Enjoyed it. I was happy to go there two times. It's really nice when you have it in the back of your mind after one visit. Come back in a couple of days not to worry about missing out on anything. In terms of the ship itself, you know, being solo, um, you know, I, I definitely relied more on the internet, which was absolutely terrible. I have to say, I love Mariner of the Seas, but gosh, it is the epitome of cruise ship internet these days. But during the cruise, Royal Caribbean announced that Starlink will be coming to Royal Caribbean very soon. We don't have a schedule yet as to when ships, which each ship will get Starlink. Starlink is a new internet service 
by SpaceX, which is the company that Elon Musk founded. And it's going to be a game changer from everything that we can tell. We actually had one of our writers go on Freedom of the Seas earlier this summer to test out Starlink on Freedom of the Seas because we had heard that they had it on there. They did indeed. And it was indeed everything and a bag of chips or something. It was it was really incredible. So I am very happy to hopefully go on a ship very, very soon, which I have better internet. Um, I remember being on Mariner and the internet, sitting there and fighting the internet, waiting for something to load and thinking to myself, this might be the last time I have really terrible ship internet on Royal Caribbean. So uh, that was good. That was like the silver lining to awful, awful internet speeds. Um, but other than that, ship was great. Uh, I had a nice time. The casino staff was fantastic. I was spending more time in the casino now, especially when you're solo. I mean, somewhere to spend the time. Um, you know, the, of course, there's great live entertainment. I'm always a uh, uh, in the evening. You know, I'll go to the um, uh, schooner bar or the pub and enjoy the live music there. I also went to dinner almost every night in the main dining room, and I, I missed it one night in the main dining room, and it was great. I got a table by myself. Uh, to, I didn't have to do anything. I didn't request it. I just showed up, and that was the default location. It was a nice table by the window. I was like, hey, this is fantastic, and service was great. Um, you know, I, I think that um, the main dining room experience still holds up. It's one of my favorite things. It's like almost, I hate to call it a guilty pleasure because that infers that it's a bad thing, but I enjoy the main dining room, and in, in this day and age of Especially dining being such a front and center piece component of the cruise experience. I don't want anyone listening to this think that the main dining room is really taking it a notch down. It's a really great, relaxing kind of a meal. I really enjoyed going there. I think the staff did a phenomenal job. I enjoyed the food overall. And um, it, it really brought me back to the early days of cruising for me when, especially dining was almost like a... Ooh, that's a, that's a weird thing to do. I don't know why we would do that. And so I, I really liked the main dining room. It was a nice thing to do. It's really nice to have break it up a little bit. You know, we did one night in, uh, in the, in Jamie's for dinner and it was nice to have a little break from, you know, you know, just something different to do a little variety. Um, but I really enjoy the main dining room and I would definitely recommend it as something that's worthwhile and it, it held up for me. I only went there for dinner. didn't go there for lunch or breakfast. I figured for dinner, that was totally fine. And, and that was totally fine. Uh, good with me, you know, in terms of the, I'm going to jump around here, the stateroom inside cabin for a solo person, no problems at all. Um, it's just enough space. In fact, for a solo person, there's more than enough space. I like, I like sleeping in, I like not being woken up at 6am by, by the sunlight. So that was no problem. And again, this goes back to the old adage of how much time are you really going to spend in your cabin for me, especially when I'm solo, I wake up, I get dressed. I grab my stuff and I'm out of there and I don't come back until maybe for a nap later on or, you know, a shower for dinner. It's just, I'm out and about. I'd much rather spend my time, you know, up in the pool deck. I like going up in the morning, especially in the summertime when it's really hot out, but like in the morning, it's kind of comfortable going to one of the chairs. There's some great Adirondack chairs in that pool deck on Mariner of the Seas, grabbing a spot there, doing some work, having my coffee with it. I love that, you know, and then I'll have breakfast, go to an activity or so, and then it's time for lunch and maybe an afternoon nap after that, but I really enjoy it. And so for me, the room, especially by myself is a mere afterthought. I actually, before the cruise had done a Royal up bid, I put a bid in to upgrade to a balcony. I figured an ocean view was kind of a waste. Like what's the difference? Um, and, uh, about uh, a couple days before the cruise set sail, they said your bids were not accepted, but stay tuned in case, you know, we there's availability on board. But I said, Nope, I, I canceled that out. And I just said, I'm going to stay with what I got. And I was happy for that. Cause I think for the money, it's, it's definitely worthwhile. Again, 
you know, there's there's two ways of thinking about cabins. One, how much time will you really spend in the room? You're going to shower, you're going to sleep, and you're going to change, and then you're out and about. So why spend money there when you can save that money and spend it elsewhere? The other thought is, well, if you do get a nice room, then that will compel you to spend more time in your room. That's fair as well. But for me, being sold, even if I had the most glamorous suite on board, I literally would have been forcing myself to sit in that room because I've just been bored. Eventually, I've been like, I got to go somewhere else because being by myself and sitting there in the cavernous cabin being like, boy, isn't this great? Doesn't really do much for me. So being solo, nothing wrong with a nice inside cabin there. Otherwise, you know, I really enjoyed Mariner. I, I have very similar conclusions from last month. Uh, staff is great. The staffing, by the way, over 100%. I spoke to the hotel director who indicated they were like 100 and I forgot the number, three or five or eight percent crew on board. So again, if you're worried about going on a cruise, you heard things back in May about, you know, understaffing and all that. I mean, Royal's in a much better spot now and certainly on Mariner of the Seas. They were at 98% when we were in July. So I don't want to make it seem like they had 70% back then. Um, you know, things are good again. And I really had minimal weights all around. So it was a great cruise. Oh, so here's my last story. I almost forgot to talk about it. So we parked at Terminal 5 in Port Canaveral. Typically, 9 out of 10 times, if you go on a cruise at a Port Canaveral with Royal Caribbean, you're going out of Terminal 1, which is their new cruise terminal. It's really easy. It's, it's, it's wonderful. I have nothing but good things to say about that. This time... For some reason, it was a nightmare getting out of here. So what do I mean by this? Well, I parked my car. And by the way, I had parked my car in the Terminal 5 when we sailed in July. had no problem. So this just goes to show you, by the way, that sometimes it's just really, really bad luck. So I walk up the ship at 7.45 a.m. We had docked a little. I think they cleared the ship a little earlier. I think maybe they cleared it around 7.15, let's say. Uh, you know, I got my, I was planning on walking up around 7.30, so I got my stuff. I walked to the ship at 7.45. So I'm literally off the ship at 7.45 a.m., and it's really easy. I have my bags with me. I didn't check any luggage, so I went straight to my car, which is on the third parking deck of Terminal 5. And Terminal 5 is not a typical terminal that Royal Caribbean uses. Think of it more like a spillover terminal. It's back by where the Carnival Cruise Terminals are, uh, the old ones. They have a new one that's, like, even closer to Terminal 1, but... This is the old ones in the back of the port. And um, I think they just use it for, you know, it's, it's not owned by a specific line necessarily, I don't think. Um, but anyway, so I get to my car and I think, actually for the purpose of the story, I think I got to my car at 7.45. So I must have walked up at 7.30, I guess. Because the, the point of this was that I got in my car, back the car up, get, you know, start driving out of the garage and then we stop. Okay, well, there's a little bit of a backup. Yeah, I stayed in that backup line for two hours. Two hours, we didn't move. I mean, we didn't move at all. Basically, I don't know what happened because I couldn't, if my wife was there, someone else was there, I could have sent them downstairs to go check out what was happening. But what was compounding the problem, whatever what the problem was, uh, compounding the problem was we were standing in line, to, you know, our cars were lined up to get out. And I'm still on deck three, but every person getting off the ship and getting in their car, what do they do? They immediately back up. And, and, you know, cut into the line. Now, granted, if you walk off the ship, you get in your car, you have no idea that the guy on deck three has been waiting in an hour already. They have, I don't think most people think that way anyway. So it just became a quagmire uh, and it just took forever. Now, when I got down to, to the gate, finally, I certainly let them know how I felt about it. I was, you know, I, I, I was not, yeah, it's not that person's fault. Here's one thing. One big difference is that Terminal 5, you pay to you pay for your parking when you leave. Terminal 1, 
you pay for your parking when you arrive. I truly believe this was the crux of the problem in that, you know, this isn't a, you know, how many cars can you get through this gate problem? This is every car needs to stop and pay. And even under the best conditions, it takes a few seconds for, you know, you put your credit card in, wait for it to process. Do you accept these charges? Yes. All right. Wait for the receipt. Okay. Wait for the gate to go up. I, uh, this, you know, this was not a surprise to me. Now, when I talked to the person over there, I said, this is all I said. I said, and I, I tried to listen. I was pretty upset because it was two hours in a parking garage. Not my idea of fun. Um, you know, I said, it took me two hours to get here. And she responded. Yeah. Uh, they let everybody off at the same time, which I said, I don't think this would have happened. And this wouldn't have been a problem in terminal one because you pay over there when you get in there. And then she was like, yeah, we're trying to change that. Anyway, the the moral of this story is I have no idea what the moral of the story. <laughs> I really don't. I don't know what I would do differently. I really thought about it. One idea, well, number one, I got to the terminal later. And if I had parked on a lower deck, I might have had a chance to get out in less than two hours. And again, for the record, when I cruised out of here in Terminal 5 in July, a couple weeks earlier, I had no problems at all. I don't remember there being any delay. I remember getting in my car because I left my wife and kids with the luggage downstairs Got my car, brought it downstairs, and I was down there in about a minute or two. So I have no earthly idea. I don't know if there was an accident. I don't ever saw any proof or evidence of there was anything that was other than a lot of people were trying to get out at the same time and everybody backing out, and there was just no order to it. So it was just everybody for themselves, and everybody was cutting each other off, and there were people that were driving around to the one ways to come around to another way to cut everybody. It was just typical Everybody trying to get out at the same kind of time. Maybe the lady was right that it was the case. I do believe in my heart of hearts that if this were Terminal 1, even if everybody gets out to the terminal at the same time, it's going to move a lot faster because there's no wait at the gate because everyone's already paid. They just simply let you out there. Obviously, we'll never be able to prove that, but that's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. So my only answer, my only thing I would do differently, well, number one, even if I had a 12 o'clock check-in time, I would still get to the terminal early to park so I could park on a lower level knowing I'm in Terminal 5, and I would go have breakfast at, like, Grills or Fish Lips or something like that, which is one of the bars nearby, um, to, to just pass the time because I think that was maybe the biggest issue, right? And again, when we parked in July, no issues. In fact, one of my friends parked on the very top of the parking garage, and he had no issues at all, so who knows? I, it, it's just one of those things where... I can almost laugh at it now, but boy, was I not laughing at it at the time. And I was really, really upset at the time. So that was the best of us. And hopefully this review of our Mariner of the Seas cruise, uh, you find enjoyable, helpful, and maybe even worthwhile to learn a, a tidbit or two. Time to answer your listener emails. And this is the part of the episode where I answer the emails that you've sent me, who I can answer an email from you. You can only send it to me by emailing it to matt at royalcaribbeanblog.com. First email is from Angela Baker. Hi, Matt. I listen to all your podcasts and read all that I can from your posts, and I find everything informative and super helpful. Thank you very much. My husband and I are heading to Hawaii on Novation of the Seas in September. When we're, uh, we are in Maui for two days, we we're thinking we're just going to Kanapali Beach to snorkel. I'm not sure where the cruise ship is going to be docked and how far the beach it is from there. I'm not trying to get there from there. Perhaps there's some ideas. It looks like a past Royal has done an excursion to that beach, but there hasn't been anything listed. We don't want to do a boat tour. We just want to do something on land. We just want to have a simple, fun, and beach day. Angel, thanks for the email. So, 
got to admit, this is a black hole of my Royal Caribbean knowledge. I've never been to Hawaii before, and I've certainly never cruised to Hawaii before. And Royal Caribbean offers very few cruises to Hawaii. The only cruises that Royal Caribbean offers to Hawaii are repositioning cruises between Alaska and Australia. And what um, what Angela is doing is, I believe, boarding the ship either in probably Seattle or Vancouver or something, and then sailing to... Um, to Hawaii, and then the cruise ends there, and she could stay on board and go to Australia if she'd like to. They split it up into two parts. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have the answer to this one. Uh, I am certain that you'd be able to take a taxi or something like that, but I, boy, yeah. My best advice, Angela, is to go post this exact question on our message boards at royalcrainblog.com. We have a dedicated shore excursion forum. I'm certain you could find some information over there. I wish I'd give you a better answer, but uh, unfortunately, I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> this is definitely one of those things I don't know. Next is an email from Karen Folsom, who hopefully has a question that I can't answer. My husband and I are finally purchasing an ultimate dining package for our next cruise on Symphony of the Seas in September. When I purchased the package, gratuities were added. Does this mean that it's taken care of? When we dine in the main dining room, I never brought a tip to my waiter every night. I did leave something in an envelope if I had the same waiter every evening at the end of the cruise. If we dine at a different place each night, do we tip again? Just want to do the right thing. Karen, great question. And it's I don't blame you for being a little unsure about this because... It's not crystal clear from Royal Caribbean how this all works. My understanding, Aaron, is that if you bought the dining package, that gratuity is indeed covered there. And you should not feel that if you ate at all the restaurants, never paid an extra dollar, that you're not stiffing anybody. I, I really don't believe that is the case. Personally, I'm just sharing my experience, Karen, not saying this is what you should do. Personally, I usually tip about, you know, 10 bucks, maybe 20 bucks, depends on how many people are with me. Uh, like if it's my family of four, I might tip an extra 20 bucks in there uh, just to, you know, for, for great service. Um, again, I really, truly believe that if you bought the dining package, and as Karen mentioned, there is that gratuities that were added. You'll see that as a line item when you check out for gratuity that you are indeed covered. Like you're you're not stiffing anybody and, and you're doing the right thing. So, and it says, so also at the bottom of the receipt, you'll say, you know, your cover charge includes gratuity and all this other stuff. So I, I, I think you're doing the right thing, Karen. I don't think there's anything there that's, but you know, do people tip on top of it? Yes, I do. But that's my own personal decision. Uh, <laughs> next is an email from Sean and Donna from Brisbane, Australia. Good day, Matt. Imagining you attempting that terrible Aussie accent. Countdown is on for cruising restart for land down under. And I've been binging your podcast in reverse order down to the low 200s. and still a way to go. I was through the good times of restart. The conversations you had with other travelers talking about their past cruises, the issue of testing and COVID. Now I'm back into pre-COVID times of 2018, hearing about the planning for the group cruises that I've already heard about, deja vu. Came around episode 289, and the last time we sent a message to you was an around Australia cruise we had booked. Unfortunately, we were unable to go on that cruise, so we rebooked Voyager in February of 2020, one of the last cruises here that, that just as it all changed. We booked on that cruise as we knew a few others on board. Asia, Adrian, Ken, and Rose, both couples we met and became friends with from previous cruises. But wow, the friendships that we gained from this cruise have developed into something special. Meeting Wilford and Terry in the Diamond Lounge on day two was an amazing start to the cruise. We clicked from the start. Even if I did ask where in the States they were from, apparently it's not a smart thing to ask a Canadian. From nighttime drinks with old friends and new friends, meeting Alex and Lizzie, the master of the Lizzie quiz, Julie and Jeff, we ended up with a group of 10 that enjoyed two weeks of cruising on a mystery tour of New Zealand, then Eden, a small port in New South Wales. Mini golf, quest to lunch and dinner, shuffleboard, and did I mention shuffleboard? Anyways, after this break, cruising is starting, and what better way than to bring Quantum of the Seas back home to Brisbane with our friends Wilford and Terry. 
We're flying over to Vancouver October 1st for a few days of discovery and then back via Hawaii, 28 nights of cruising, getting back, getting to know new friends along the way. We'll be handle, we'll be handing over Quantum to Pippa in Brizzy and I know she'll be boarding at that time. One question I've not heard asked previously, with our back-to-back -back changeover in Honolulu, do you know if we can leave the ship after we've gone through the recheck-in process or will we need to stay on board? Uh, looking forward to 2025 Joint Ocean Time Royal Caribbean Block Group Cruise Down Under intent. If you do get an info on Icon, would love to hear. Um, so as relates to the back-to-back, -back, I, boy, this, these are great questions that I don't know the answers to. There, I know there is some sort of an issue. This is really deep in maritime law now that when you have a repositioning cruise from uh, North America to Australia and you board the ship in North America, primarily Seattle, and then you do a back-to-back-to-back, -to -back -to -back, like three in a row, I think, there is some mechanism, some means in which you can't do them because you'll be violating the PVSA, the Passenger Vessel Services Act of the United States. And I'll, I have no idea. I honestly have no clue how that works. I'm, I'm, I, a couple of Aussies have brought this up. I've always thought it's kind of an edge case scenario. Like how many people are really doing three cruises in a row on like a, what ends up being like a month or more at sea, maybe more than I'm giving credit to. I don't know. Um, but I don't know. I, from what I've heard, and I have no way of knowing this is true or not. So, uh, Sean and Donna, this is a long way of me saying I have no idea. From what I've heard, if you are, if you were going to do one of those kind of cruises, you could, they wouldn't let you get on the ship. I, I really don't know. I, I honestly don't. This is deep into maritime law. Um, and, and I'm not even sure how that works because your ship ends in Australia. Like, who cares? Maybe Royal Caribbean gets hit with a fine when they come back next year. I, I don't know. Um, but basically, there's um, what this boils down to is some of the legal maritime laws of the United States. And it relates to foreign flagged ships, with which the cruise ships are foreign flagged, and beginning in one port and ending in another port that's not in the U.S. And I don't pretend to understand it. I, <laughs> I probably could give you more information about ocean, about ocean time, about Icon of the Seas than uh, <laughs> and this issue, of which I know nothing about Icon of the Seas, but at least I could vamp on that for a minute. Uh, hopefully we'll get more information about Icon later this month, but man, oh man, I feel terrible. These are terrible answers so far. I'm one for three, which by the way, in baseball, I know the Oz didn't know what I'm talking about. If I was one for three, I would have an excellent batting average and I can make the uh, Hall of Fame with that batting average. So I'm just saying, not so bad. Next up is an email from Michael. Love your show and truly appreciate your knowledge and insight. Quick question regarding cash shipping on the ship. I've heard that gratuities for drinks was distributed to several crew members like bartender, server, etc. When I'm sitting by the pool or elsewhere and having a server take a drink order for me and deliver it, I would like to provide an additional tip specifically to that server since they're walking back and forth. If I give the server a cash tip, would that full amount go to him or does he have to turn the tip in then it's redistributed? We've got four crews over the next eight months getting very excited. Michael, I think... Well, let's put it this way. I mean, the server could certainly pocket the cash and put it in their pocket. No one would be the wiser. Uh, in all the bars I've been to on Royal Caribbean, I don't believe it's the policy. I think it's just the bar does this. They will take cash tips and put it in a cash tip jar. Usually there's an empty liquor box of some kind in the back and they put tips in there and they spread it around. Because of course, don't forget the guys who walk around and gals who walk around to give you your drinks or sometimes those drinks are fulfilled by other people at the bar. This is classically the case in the pub where you'll see some bartenders who never leave behind the bar and some bartenders, waiters who walk around and take drink orders. So I think they, the fair thing for them to do is pool them together. And I think nine out of 10 times they pool the tips. Now, Michael, is that the policy of rural Caribbean or is that the generally agreed upon 
best practice among the people at that bar? I honestly don't know the answer, and I've always assumed it's the latter. It's that the bar people decide what's fair is fair, and you know, just because we're behind the bar doesn't mean we're not doing work back here, especially in helping fulfill orders. Um, I can only tell you that I've seen the 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 the, the bar tipping jar, if you will, and most bars. The, again, they usually use a uh, empty old liquor box um, and they put that in there because you actually it's a good little tip here if you're looking to get cash to break your, get some change from a larger bill you can oftentimes ask the bar staff if they have tips and they can break it with the, with the dollar bills they have um so i would say this michael um certainly if you're when, when let me let me back up for a second if when you have a drink package and you order a drink that bartender gets a portion of the tip basically the more people they service the larger the pie gratuities from that day that they get. That's why it's in their best interest to continue to serve you, even though gratuities are already prepaid. When drink packages first came out, people were a little worried, like, oh, well, what's the incentive for the waiter to actually come around and take my order anymore if they already know they're getting a tip? Well, the incentive is if they lollygag it, they're not going to get nearly as many tips. So it's in their best interest to get as many drink orders in so they can get the largest slice of the pie. On top of that, the cash tips, you know, certainly... Where that all goes, the the automatic tips. Good question. I don't know, but certainly the uh, the cash tips on top of that, they truly appreciate. And those at the end of the night, they take home in their pockets. So um, I don't think you're on the wrong end of things here. I I don't think you should assume that the people, the other bartenders who are working behind the bar, are necessarily you know taking money from that guy who or gal who hustled to get you that stuff. It's a team effort, and I really do believe that. Next is an email from Alex from North Carolina. My wife and I go on our second cruise in a few weeks on Independence of the Seas. It'll be our first cruise taking our kids 7 and 11, and they're very excited. Can't wait to tour Perfect Day at Goku Key. We were recently in Charleston for a weekend trip. We saw the carnival ships that embark out of the port down there and wish we could have left from there with Royal. It got me wondering what goes into a cruise line deciding what ports they use for embarkation on their ships and why they chose against some. Also, any tips for our first cruise with these boys in tow? Thanks a lot for the information you get all to all of us eager listeners. Alex, thank you for the email. So um, there's a lot of factors that go into why a ship goes out of port, embark out of one port or another. Number one, there's the deals they have, Alex. Um, you know, specifically, I know the Port Miami and Everglades and Canaveral, they have they promise these ports certain deals. Like we'll deliver X amount of ships with X amount of passengers, you know, for a certain amount of years. And that, you know, it works both ways, right? They get a better deal from the, from the port in terms of the fees and the port gets to know, you know, dedicated amount of traffic. And there are only a fixed amount of cruise ships in the world. So... You know, you, there's only so many ships to go around. Carnival, traditionally, Carnival's fleet has been larger than Royal Caribbean. During the pandemic, Carnival sold off and scrapped a number of ships. And I think actually Royal Caribbean's fleet, well, the Royal Caribbean group is larger. I'm not sure if Royal Caribbean International is larger, but Carnival traditionally has had smaller, older ships that would serve underserved markets like Mobile, Charleston, New Orleans, things like that. Whereas Royal Caribbean, whose fleet was a little bit smaller and more distributed, they would send ships more to places like, you know, Australia and China they would have their ships in the larger traditional cruise ports, such as Port Canaveral, Port Miami, and, and Port Everglades. Um, I, I don't know the specifics on, on Charleston. Um, I know that uh, Charleston itself had been pushing for cruise ships to come out of there, and Carnival answered that call. This was largely, I think, before the pandemic. Um, and there's obviously a limited capacity there. Whether or not there's bridges like in Baltimore and Tampa, that also hinders the ships that can go in there. If there's physical structures that prevent larger from going there. But I think ultimately uh, a major factor may simply be that Royal Caribbean sees where its customer base comes from. And, you know, the larger Southeast United States of which you live in, you live in North Carolina, 
you're in driving distance of Florida. I mean, you probably don't want to do it all that much. I've didn't I've done the drive from Orlando to North Carolina. It's ten hours to the to the Asheville area. It's not around the corner by any means, but you know, the Carolinas, Georgia, northern Florida, that is very much, I think, what they would consider to be uh, a region in which you have Port Canaveral and you've got a you know, short flight, it's, it's it's all manageable. So adding another ship sailing out of Charleston or Mobile or Jacksonville doesn't really do much other than cannibalize traffic or customer bases that would otherwise be going a little further south in Florida. Again, I don't know this for a fact. This is just something I've observed in my in my years here. Um, and, and I think, again, Royal Caribbean prefers to, if they have the choice, they'd rather put that ship somewhere else, like in a burgeoning market like China, in a growing market like Australia, in other markets around the world, in Europe, uh, you know, a, a big shift that I've noticed in cruise, if Royal Caribbean and their distribution of ships from, let's say, 2012, 2015 to today is they've distributed more ships overseas. Europe, and before the pandemic, China, I would have, it would have been interesting to see where cruising would have been today had there not been COVID, among other things, but uh, China and Australia. Those are the three big, big markets that had or have or still do generate a lot of revenue because they're growing and there's a lot of demand. Uh, Europe is dominated by North Americans, believe it or not. But North Americans will travel there, so that's where the money is. In Australia and China, you've got growing, you know, I, I think Australia is very much a, an established market, but it went from a, oh, isn't that cute? There's some cruise ships that go out of, South, out of Australia to the South Pacific to like, wow, there's a big market down here. We got to take advantage of it. Uh, and China, which was one that, again, pre-COVID looked to be, I mean, I remember Royal Caribbean talking in the terms that it could be the next North America in terms of the, the amount of demand over there with their market. But I think that's all kind of taking a back seat right there. So yeah, that's my, uh, that's my TED talk on <laughs> cruise ship distributions. But there's a lot of factors, pricing, fees, market share, deal arrangements, all that kind of stuff. Um, as to tips for first time cruise with your kids who are seven and 11, register them on day one for Adventure Ocean. Um, you know, watching those videos, uh, you know, we have a YouTube channel, which we have tours. So it's a good idea for them. They, you know, we have an Independence of the Seas video tour. We have a Perfect Day Coco Key tour so they can get an idea of what to expect there. My other advice just, this is just for families in general with kids. You know, I know that when you're leading up to the cruise, You've got these grandiose ideas of things you're going to do. All these amazing things you can't wait to check out. And it's very tempting on day one to try to squeeze in as much of it as you can because you're very excited for it. My advice is take it one step at a time. Put it back in second gear and let the kids be kids. Um, you know, get on board the ship, eat lunch. That's always important. And then let them go to the pool if they'd like to. Let them burn off all their energy, uh, you know, in the pool, in Splash Away Bay. You know, let them get their energy out um, so that they can also enjoy the experience. And for you as the parent, yeah, you want to go check out a lot of other things, but you know, grab a drink at the bar. You and your wife have the celebratory. We're on board a cruise ship drink and, you know, enjoy that experience too. It's not to make it seem like that's like, Oh gosh, that seems like a torture. No, it's a lot of fun. Just different. And that was an adjustment for me going from cruising without kids to kids, especially when my kids got a little bit older, they weren't like infants and they just went whenever we went. It, it was just something, a, a good lesson learned so that we could both have a good time at the same time. And last email is from Jess. Hello, just got off Odyssey of the Seas where we had an interesting experience. We went, we went past a boat that needed help on our way to Naples. This meant that we stopped and we sent a drone and they sent a drone to the ship to see the situation and then medication as well as other things. 
We then had to wait and sit with them until a rescue ship arrived. We were all, most of us, very happy to accommodate and put a hold. Now know some people that weren't happy about saving people's lives were ones who had booked external excursions. This is because our arrival in Naples changed from 7.30 a.m. to 10 a.m., and they would miss their excursion, whereas if they had booked them with Royal Caribbean, it would have just been a later start. The captain decided we would stay at Naples till 7.30 p.m. that day instead of the original departure time of 5.30 p.m., which meant that all Royal excursions would continue at a later time. I think that guests don't realize how much booking with Royal Caribbean can really save them sometimes regarding excursions slash directly booking with a cruise line with Royal Caribbean. I thought I'd email and hopefully be able to get some information out there as it's the first time I've experienced something like this. And like you say, with travel insurance, you don't understand the importance of it until you need it. Thank you. Love the blog. Just a really good point. I mean, I would. here's what I would say. The counter argument to your, I don't think you're wrong. I'd say the counter argument is how likely is that to occur? That scenario you outlined. Few and far between, it's more often than not, you end up going to the places you're going to, and more often than not, you're going to the places you're going to on time. That being said, there is a risk there, and you're not wrong on that. When you're booking with third parties, in a lot of cases, there is very inflexible options. I mean, certainly they give you your money back if you're not going to be there in time because of the cruise ship. That's almost always the case, but you still want to be able to do a tour. So, hey, that's not a... Your logic is certainly sound. I think it makes a lot of sense. So, just thank you for the email. Thank you to everybody. For checking out this episode of the Royal Caribbean Blog Podcast, you can always email me your questions to matt at royalcaribbeanblog.com, matt, M-A-T-T, at royalcaribbeanblog.com. Until next time, I'm Matt, and we'll talk again real soon.